Hey everyone, this is Jordan Smart. Welcome back to Affirmative Interaction. There's like a running joke that I do this with my hands when I'm greeting people. And uh, I've done it once again. It is a trap I cannot get away from. But we're excited that you all have joined us for another episode of Affirmative Interaction. I'm joining, of course, we have Mike, Adrian, Esther, Garrison, Simone, Logan, and another Mike, which we will introduce in a minute. We're very excited to have him on. Danny was not able to make it today, but she might be joining us later. So we want to just get right into the discussion on what we're talking about today, which is immigration. And of course, if you're watching uh, us and with us right now, feel free to tell us where you're watching from. And of course, our podcast is live on Apple and Spotify. And we're also streaming on Facebook, obviously, and YouTube. So feel free to check us out after the show or even during our live stream right now. So we have brought on our good friend, Michael Ibrahim. He is a immigration attorney in Chicago. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. He is a good friend of our own Michael Nixon. And what, what brought us to wanting to bring Michael onto the show today is in Georgia, there has been a whistleblower complaint filed this week the Department of Homeland Security of the Inspector General that alleges that high rates of hysterectomies, sometimes without the com the compliant called with sometimes without what the complaint called, excuse me, proper informed consent. And these have been performed on women detained in a privately owned immigration jail in Georgia. Uh, of course, like many ICE detention centers, um, it is, uh, the, these centers are run by privately owned prison. And in fact, this prison is run by LaSalle Corrections. And previously, this corrections facility or this company has come under fire for medical mistreatment in our current pandemic. So just to round out a little summary of what's been going on this week, several women detainees uh, have said that their medical visits um, with doctors have become notorious for the rough treatment they've experienced during gynecological, gynecological exams and performing a high number of procedures. And these accounts were consistent with the whistleblower, whistleblower complaints. So that is a lot of what's been happening. And we want to just really think about and talk about what immigration right now is happening and what's going on and what are what rights maybe are not being withheld for individuals in detention in immigration centers so we brought michael ibrahim here just to talk to us a little bit about his experience as a lawyer and to just answer some of the questions we have and even maybe talk about how immigration might be affecting the upcoming election so Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Just want to ask you, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate you taking the time to have me on board. Very good. Very good. So Michael, could you tell us a little bit about your work as an immigration attorney and maybe even what has influenced you into going into this field of work? Yeah, sure. So. I the the Genesis story that I always tell, um, I'll truncate it, make it super short and sweet. Um, my parents wanted me to be they wanted me to go into medicine. So I went into medicine. 
or I thought I was going into medicine. Um, I enrolled in courses, uh, in pre-dental uh, courses uh, designed to go to dental school freshman year of college. Um, I remember at three in the morning on Martin Luther King Day in 2007, uh, a day before the second semester is supposed to start, uh, my freshman year of college, I made the decision I, I can't do this anymore. So I unenrolled in all of the classes that I'd signed up for, and I took a an elective called pre-law uh, that was offered by the University of Illinois College of Law at the time for undergraduate students. And from there, I discovered that law was something that I wanted to do. So then I thought, okay, you want to go to law school, but what what exactly do you want to practice? Is that is that a question you can even answer as a what nineteen year old? Um, and immediately I thought, okay, well, you're going into medicine to help people. What better way of helping people than helping people just like your parents and just like your family members who are immigrants? So I'm a first-generation immigrant. Uh, in my immediate family, I'm the first person born in the United States. Um, so I figured this is the path. I'm going to go into immigration law. And from there, uh, you know, the Tuesday after MLK Day of 2007, I had set myself to, you know, on this path to go into immigration law. So I started taking comparative politics international studies courses, trying to understand uh, international relations, uh, you know, how the how foreign politics influence asylum seekers and global migration. Um, and it ended up working out. Uh, it was a bold move, I think, at the time. Uh, it could have failed miserably, but it actually ended up working out because my undergraduate courses helped to set me up for what I do today. And, you know, obviously I went to law school, I passed the bar exam, uh, but that set me up for what I do today, which is uh, family-based immigration, so marriage-based applications, citizenship, um, family members bringing uh, their their family members over, U.S. citizen and permanent residents bringing their, their foreign immigrant family members over, um, but also removal defense, so deportation defense, and humanitarian-based uh, applications, for example, asylum. Uh, trafficking visas, victim visas, uh, Violence Against Women Act cases. Uh, that ultimately pushes you into an area where you do a lot of federal court work. So when things aren't going your way or where things you think that ICE or USCIS or DHS or the immigration court got something wrong, you could always take your case up to federal court. So basically I do just about everything immigration related except for employment-based work. So that's a totally different game. Special skills visas are, are something that I don't do, but I work off counsel for a firm that does. Gotcha, thank you. Um, I, I will say one of the questions I do have, and I think what is kind of like what, what is on everybody's mind is what is going on with the uh, hysterectomy. And I know not many people know what is going on because this is a very fresh and new story. And hopefully my recap was good. But I, I do want to ask you, I mean, what struggles do you see in trying to, at least in your circles or just in your experiences, what struggles do you see in detainees having their rights or, or, or the what struggles do you see in trying to uphold rather detainees rights while they're being held? What struggles do you see in trying to really kind of work through these smoke screens of these heinous things happening 
without any oversight, without people really knowing. I mean, how do you, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you protect a lot of people that you work with from, I would say these very big and, and hard to deal with uh, authorities? Right, and I'll preface all this by just touching up slightly on uh, what's going on at the Irwin County Detention Center. Um, just for some background for people who aren't aware. Um, I don't have any personal experience with this or any firsthand knowledge from clients, but um, the American Immigration Lawyer Association's Removal Defense Section, um, so AILA, AILA's Removal Defense Section is currently working on um, getting people that might be, or women and children that might be affected by this. So just an FYI to everyone, the Irwin County Detention Center, apparently there was a rogue, we'll call it, quote unquote, um, OBGYN who was uh, conducting hysterectomies and, uh, you know, whether they were medically viable or whether it was something that was necessary based on medical conditions at the time, uh, I, I don't know, but it sounds like, according to the whistleblower complaint, the initial whistleblower complaint that, that I've just Read, uh, you know, skimmed over. Um, these were non-consensual, uh, you know, completely unnecessary surgeries. And the problem is that these hysterectomies um, are not reversible, and they end up rendering the woman uh, unable to conceive children in the future, amongst other things. So I'm happy to report that you know, AILA, the American Immigration Law Association, uh, has a call to arms, quote unquote, to its members, asking. Uh, people to screen their clients, screen their cases, specifically asking clients about whether they've been in contact with this doctor um, or if they've ever been uh, detained at the Irwin County Detention Center. Um, I have confirmation from other attorneys that understandably some of these people, some of these women are not volunteering information. Could you imagine going through that? I can't. Um, but that being said, um, if anybody out there is hearing this and they have for some reason any information about this i am happy to put them in contact with somebody who can help um we're going to need hipaa forms for this uh to get information released by the id or by the icdc and to get the ball rolling on records that can help them in the future so that's just some foreground you know you, you, you talked about this hysterectomy story to answer to answer your question um I can spend five hours on the difficulties uh, that we see in uh, defending someone who's detained by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, the first thing that we talk about is, does this person have access to you know, equal rights and have the ability to maintain their, due pro you know, their rights to due process in this case? So when somebody's detained by DHS, they're not being detained just because DHS is trying to have fun. They're not being detained because they, they're trying to have fun. They're trying to you know, spend the night at a jail. DHS in every single case is trying to ensure that this person is removed from the United States, whether that's now, AKA what's known in the legal, sorry, the immigration world as imminent removal, or whether it's because there are pending removal proceedings ongoing. So, in the case of somebody, let's say, for example, uh, a recent asylum seeker, there are more likely than not uh, eminent removal proceedings. Um, if you come into the United States and you're seeking entry to the United States, the first question a, a competent uh, Border Patrol officer will ask is, um, could we see your documentation? 
what travel document do you possess? And almost every asylum seeker coming to the US-Mexico border will say, I don't have any. But almost every asylum seeker coming to the US-Mexico border will say, I'm not here to try to evade law. I'm not here to try to enter without permission. I'm here voluntarily approaching the border because I'm seeking asylum from my country of origin. So what then happens is the person is placed into DHS custody. And if they claim a fear of return, they are given what is known as a CFI, a credible fear interview. This process begins a ball rolling that usually in my experience goes two to three months. Two to three months, more likely than not, in DHS custody. Two to three months where you are in sometimes solitary confinement. Two to three months where there's a lack of real bed space. Two to three months where women and children are separated from their husbands and fathers. Where aluminum style, uh, aluminum foil style uh, blankets substitute cloth or you know material uh, warm blankets that you and I would have if we were to go to sleep at night. And that's just Monday through Friday, right? Imagine going through the legal process now. Who's your attorney? Could you afford an attorney? Do you have the option of working on a work release to be able to afford your attorney? Is there an attorney that's willing to take your case? Is there legal aid that's willing to take your case? Every legal aid that I work with is overwhelmed with these cases. Every attorney that practices in this area is overwhelmed with cases. I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell somebody, I'm sorry, but I do not have the capacity to take your case. I can't tell you how many times that I've seen people in immigration court uh, show up and say, listen, we couldn't find an attorney to help us. Um, but that's, again, that's if they are released, if they make it all the way through the process. Um, so everything comes super fast. These are human beings we're talking about. So, you know, I'm not even getting into the to, to the to the legal aspect of this. I'm just getting into the, uh, I guess we can call it uh, administrative stuff, right? Keeping them detained, keeping them away from uh, good food, clean water. Uh, there are numerous reports from these border uh, border state facilities talking about fecal matter uh, being spread all over, um, talking about um, you know a, a lack of cleanliness. Janitors aren't aren't uh, often at these uh, locations. And the immigration bar uh, is actively pursuing FOIAs, Freedom of Information Act requests, to try to uncover this. Just today, I was on a Zoom meeting um, with the American Immigration Law Association Chicago uh, Immigration Court Liaison Committee. And when I say liaison committee, the Trump administration's uh, DOJ and DHS has completely shunned us in, in many aspects. Um, but there is very little transparency with the government and the private bar and the public these days. So who knows? And these are, these are substantiated reports, but who knows what really is going on there? And again, I've just spent what, five minutes talking about food, clothing, shelter, separation of, of families. I haven't even gotten into how difficult it is for an immigration attorney, if that person's lucky enough to have one, to be able to adequately represent this person and competently represent this person. I wanted to um, just piggyback off of what you were saying and, and perhaps you could provide some insight. Um, you, you talked about just the lack of transparency that we are currently seeing um, from the Trump administration. And of course, there has been a lot of protest, a lot of criticism um, about him, 
about his handling of, of ice, the, the empowering that that kind of came from him in, in terms of how people are treating immigrants. Um, I'm wondering if, if there's any other aspects that you've noticed in your work where you can say uh, things like this weren't happening four years ago, or perhaps you can say the immigration system as a whole has in many ways been horrible regardless of who is president. Um, but are there any things that you can say uh, this is highly irregular um, that have kind of taken place in like the last four years or so? That I, I would be able to probably write five dissertations if, if you gave me if you gave me enough time, if you gave me a few years. Um, where do I even start? That's a great question, but where do I even start? So um, let's talk, let's, let's focus on asylum seekers here because um, I'm willing to bet that the majority of the Irwin County Detention Center's victims, quote unquote, were recent asylum seekers. Um, and this is not to say that other administrations, you know, the Reagan administration, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, Bush, you know, Bush two, and the Obama administration all had questionable tactics when it came to immigration. I'm not saying this is new, but what is irrational, completely unfounded, and basically an indictment on the hundreds of years that the US Constitution has been in existence, and all these rules that have been put into place, or so we thought, um, really came to light with the Trump administration. So you go back to January 2017, within the first 100 days of office, um, within the first few days of office in January 2017, we get the Muslim ban. Um, I have clients that are not, I have plenty of clients that are Muslim, plenty of clients that are non-Muslim, but I get clients that are non-Muslim from the countries affected saying, but I'm not Muslim, I'm Yazidi, I'm Christian, I'm Druze. Does this affect me? Yes, it does affect you. Um, you know, you get a lot of people that are, when you cast this net, impacted and that doesn't, I'm not even speaking as to the merits as to whether an, a Muslim ban, you know, does what you're asking it to do. It, it just screams of xenophobia. Um, then we get this memorandum from, uh, sorry, it was an executive order that is passed down to ICE saying any, anybody who is not a citizen and who is in violation of the immigration laws is an enforcement removal priority. Um, and sorry, an enforce, uh, enforcement priority for removal. Under the Obama administration, for example, enforcement priorities included se serious criminals, followed by significant criminals, followed by anybody else who was in violation of the immigration law. Seems pretty logical, right? You go after those who really, really don't deserve to be here. Then you go after the second tier. Then you go after the third tier. And you don't go after everybody else. You just let it be. But the Trump administration immediately said anyone with any known immigration violation, including entering the United States without permission, overstaying a visa, committing any crime in any state, even if you're not convicted, look it up. It's a January 25th executive order, is an enforcement priority. Um, I would strongly recommend watching Immigrant Nation, I think, or Immigration Nation on Netflix, because you can even see the ICE officers kind of saying, what? Wait a minute. I mean, we're really happy we have a president that, that you know, uh, pushes us forward. But I think we're getting a lot of people that don't deserve what's happening here. Non-criminals, for example. Um, 
But again, going back to focusing on asylum seekers, um, you've seen in the past few years, the attorney general on his own invoke new changes in the law. So the immigration court is here. The immigra immigration court is an administrative body. So it's not, you know, like your county court. If you were to go to criminal court, it's, it's, a, it's a court that's run by judges and run by administration. Uh, if you go to federal court, for example, it's a court that's run by Article Three judges, um, judges that are separate and apart from the presidency and from the legislative body. Immigration court is under the Department of Justice. What's the Department of Justice under? The executive branch. Who runs the executive branch? Donald J. Trump. DHS, which is the other side in removal proceedings, is run by guess who? The executive branch. So you have basically a situation where the prosecutor is the judge's best friend and in the same building. And then you have us as, you know, the lowly immigration guy coming in and trying to convince the judge that his best bud is incorrect. Um, so another thing we've been calling for for quite some time is a neutral and detached immigration court. But what you're seeing now is the immigration courts being str uh, strong, strong held by namely Jeff Sessions and uh, uh, William Barr, the two most recent attorney generals who have been referring themselves longstanding Board of Immigration Appeals cases and saying, you know what, I don't agree with this. So basically you have President Trump coming in and saying, I, I want to change the laws and I want to change the laws through my own attorney general. And what happens is you get a bunch of asylum seekers seeking benefits that they used to be entitled to that are no longer on the table because of sub substantive and immediate changes in law by nobody in Congress, and by nobody in the, the Article Three courts. And we can go on and on about regulations passed by the DOJ. Um, you know, one thing that I'm really curious about, and, and thank you for sharing so much of your expertise. Um, I certainly saw while I was um, an ADA that there were, a, it was ramping up that ice holds were very common for petty theft, you know, like things that were so silly, honestly, but um, it was happening all the time. Um, and my question, you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like this hysterectomy stuff does not happen in a vacuum. It obviously we've heard so much about our system and how broken it is. I think the question that comes to mind for me um, is, you know, two things. I think one is the rights of, of immigrants and how those rights are different than American citizens or even green card holders. And then also, um, you know, just your personal experience with the the health care system within those detention centers. Um, I'm curious, you know, what, like, what has that looked like? Because in prisons, I mean, <laughs> there is no, like, you're not getting good care. They're not looking after you. They don't really, you know, care about what's happening with you. And so I'm like amazed and horrified, of course, but like that they're even that surgery is even an option. Obviously this is the most horrific kind, but like, like, you know, like that type of engagement with this community is even surprising, I guess not for a malevolent intent sort of thing, but I'm curious, you know, what has your experience been when you've, 
you know, encounter people who have been through the quote unquote healthcare system that is servicing the detention centers. Um, have you heard of other horrific things like this? Is this, you know, kind of the most horrific thing that we've heard in a while? So it gets a lot of attention, but there are other things happening. The worst thing that I've heard of is inmates dying. So yeah, once a year, I'll hear from my client something like, oh yeah, my, you know, this guy in my pod died. He was malnourished or, you know, he had medical conditions uh, and he died. Um, and as a friendly reminder, uh, people who are in immigration custody, yes, are often criminals or they have pending criminal cases, but they're not being held because of their crime, if any. They're, it's, it's a civil proceeding. So um, I can't think of any other type of law or, or you know, body of law where somebody is non-criminal and is subject to detention, right? Usually you're detained, even if you commit, let's say, contempt of court, right? Um, you're brought in because it's a criminal proceeding. But immigration is the one area of law where you're, you can be non-criminal and still be detained. And that's the majority of my clients. Um, but that all being said, um, I've, you know, I, I've heard of inmate deaths. Um, the, the biggest complaint that I get is I don't have access to my meds. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, relay types or, or kinds of medicine or prescription drugs that my clients, uh, you know, might, might be prescribed to, but for example, someone will say, oh, listen, I'm, I'm prescribed X prescription, you know, Zoloft, let's say. Um, but they don't have Zoloft. They only have lorazepam. You know, it's, it's similar to Zoloft, but it's not Zoloft. And they don't even have a generic that's like Zoloft. Or, um, you know, I have this heart condition that requires a very specific type of medicine, but they don't have it. They're giving me something similar to it, but it's not treating me right. Um, and I'm, you know, you hear about this in the immigration context, you definitely hear about it in the criminal context, as I'm sure you, you, you're aware. Um, but again, it just speaks to, and I'm not, I'm not saying that pending criminal cases warrant jail time or, or warrant custody while the case is pending. But I'm definitely saying that somebody who has an immigration case, they're in only rare circumstances, should they be incarcerated? That's, just my opinion. Obviously, I'm very heavily biased, but what ends up happening is you get these people with medical conditions that end up faring very poorly uh, because they don't have the access to, to to medical treatment that they that they're entitled to and deserve. And it doesn't matter that they're a non-citizen. It doesn't matter if they're a citizen of the U.S., a permanent resident, if they're here in an H-1B special skills visa. Doesn't matter if they're a professional soccer player or if they're a day laborer. They're still a human being. And that's the point that we try to get across to these ICE officers, but they often just have it go in this year and it goes out the other year. Sometimes they just pass the buck to the medical professionals at the detention center, but ultimately it's on them. They're the ones that are putting our, our, you know, our clients and these non-citizens into this predicament in the first place. Wow, thanks, Michael. Um, I, and I know you, you're running up against another meeting, we can, so we can, we can um, keep going. I already, I already sent the message out saying I'm going to be late, so this is more important. Oh, great! No, appreciate that. And so I'm maybe a couple more up. questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that was that was secretly the idea. Spoiler alert. 
now. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did want to ask you about because one of the other things that were mentioned in the whistleblower report, which was uh, filed by Human Rights Group Project South, uh, they they also, in addition to just the hysterectomy story, talked about some of the um, the conditions that have worsened due to COVID. And so um, the, the fact that it seems that in the detention centers, um, precautions and protocols around, um, you know, keeping people, you know, safe from COVID and things of that nature has have not been implemented. And so I was wondering if you can maybe shed some light, shed some light on that, and also just how, in general, COVID has affected. You know, it's already a labor-intensive and lengthy process. All the different kinds of cases that you're working with, but. Um, how has COVID um, affected, I guess, all right. those different um, things? Real real quick before I, before I forget this, because we're talking about the, the complaint filed. Um, I, I think it's funny, well, in, in a, you know, I don't mean funny in like a, you know, comedic way, but it's, it's interesting that you have people that are reporting on this listserv, um, you know, it, immigration attorneys reporting on this listserv uh, surrounding the OBGYN fiasco at Irwin. Um, who have multiple times requested surgeries performed for their clients, removal of cysts, um, uh, you know, hernias, for example, important surgeries that are perhaps life or death or urgent because the person's in serious pain go completely unnoticed and completely unlooked. Yet you have this OBGYN performing needless surgeries at a whim on his or her own. Um, I think I think that that needs to be d discussed, mm -hmm. you know, elsewhere. But regarding how COVID has impacted the immigration process in general, um, I'll I'll tell you this: the immigration courts, uh, the detained courts. In fairness to them, and I'm obviously criticizing the immigration courts, the Department of Justice, and DHS here openly and notoriously. But in fairness, at least in Chicago, I think they've done an amazing job or they've done as best as they could. Um, we're getting hearings scheduled. We're getting people released. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to say it on record, but there is one judge in Chicago that is sick and tired of this BS that is very outspoken about this. I'll go into a bond hearing in zoom court and he'll just ask, has your client committed any crimes? No. Why are they here? I don't know. Ask DHS. They have no excuse. And he says, I'm done. Conditional parole. I'm not even going to give a bond. I'm just letting him out for free. And you haven't seen that. I, I didn't see that in the Obama administration. And I wasn't practicing law in the Bush administration. Um, at least you have some judges that are sick and tired of seeing ICE continue to make detention a priority. Um, mm -hmm. Why is detention a priority when we have a global pandemic that I don't think any of us have lived through? Because I don't think we were born in 1918. Um, but in terms of the process in general, um, the Trump administration has used COVID to continue building its wall. So I don't know if there's a, and I mean the, the metaphoric wall, I don't know if there's a physical wall built. I don't care because, you know, somebody can just dig a tunnel or fly a helicopter. I have clients who've told me once that they used uh, propeller planes to get over the border and just jump down from about 50, you know, not 50 feet, like, like 30 feet, pretty, pretty high, but um, they'll get over it. 
But what they can't get over is an immigrant visa ban because of COVID and a non-immigrant visa ban because of COVID. And, you know, I understand the borders closing because of COVID, um, but I've had clients that, you know, in the middle of working on their case, all of a sudden the Department of State says, oh, Trump announced there's a ban on non-immigrants entering the United States. Sorry, wife, you can't join your husband who's already in the U.S. Oops. Um, my bad. So why wasn't this an issue prior to COVID? Why is it an issue during COVID? I don't know. Because you still have free-flowing travel through the airports. Right. You know, Yes, there's restrictions on Schengen area, the UK, Ireland, um, China, Iran, um, just to name a few. But you're reuniting somebody with their family in these instances. Um, so the Trump administration is refusing to issue immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas to people who didn't have them at the time of the, of the ban. So basically anybody who was in the middle of the process no longer could continue this process for the foreseeable future. Um, the Muslim ban was supposed to be revisited and reviewed 60 days after it came through in 2017, and it's still in existence. And I think today is, if I look at my clock, September 16th, 2020. So uh, this revisiting uh, is just a convenient way of saying we're going to extend this until I'm out of office. Uh, these bans are in effect until December 31st, 2020. I have every reason to believe they're just going to be extended after that. Um, more practically speaking, USCIS closed. So that's the immigration agency, quote unquote, the one that processes applications. Um, they closed things down due to COVID. They're slowly starting to reopen. Um, ICE in-person visits for people who are on supervision orders who are currently in deportation or have been deported before but are allowed to remain here. Um, they're closed. Uh, CBP, as I said, is operating on limited entries. Mm -hmm. um, but where you really feel it, guys, is the non-detained immigration court. The non-detained immigration court is an absolute fiasco. It's in complete shambles. Um, mm -hmm. I think the courts are prioritizing the detained docket. But you have your fair share of cases that should be open and shut that are being rescheduled or being pushed back. Um, and lack of transparency. We have asked multiple times the private bar for information surrounding why a court was closed. Was this a COVID case? Was this a non-COVID case? No response. No response. And it's all coming from headquarters. Our sources indicate this is all coming from Washington, D.C. And by the way, the U.S. Attorney's Office for your local jurisdiction is in charge of deciding whether or not the immigration court opens or closes. So let me think about this. The Department of Justice is telling the Department of Justice what to do in a case involving the Department of Homeland Security against a private individual. Got it. So that makes a lot of sense. That's fair. Um, and again, I know, I know COVID is crazy. I know these are unreal times. And I understand this is a, not to say it, novel issue. But I think there are better ways of addressing this. Why, for example, did the Chicago Immigration Court take away email filings? Why do I now have to go in person to file something? Why couldn't I just file it over, over email? You know, I mean, we can go on and on about this. But personally, I'd report back it's, it's, it's a headache dealing with COVID. But in fairness, a lot of these agencies have done as best as they can, minus the Chicago non-detained immigration court. Um, I'm curious to know what 
do you think it would require for things to improve? And where do you think we should be applying pressure? Like, is this something that like a move of a move from Congress is, is something is, is this, do we just need a new president? Like where, what should we as the, as a collective community, what should we be doing and who should we be talking to and calling and applying pressure on to improve the condition of the attainment centers and also just all of the inhumane practices that we've seen come up out of this administration. Right. So again, we can write a, an anthology on the, the flaws in the immigration law. Um, it, it starts, honestly, it starts with the law. It starts with Congress. Comprehensive immigration reform starts with Congress. To, to, to give you some background, so the immigration law, quote unquote, is kind of just borrowed from the last one and then amended in part or in, you know, as things go along. The most recent congressional amendment or sub significant amendment to the immigration code is what is known as IRA-IRA, the I-I-R-A-I-R-A, so the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, I think, something like that. It was passed, so Orrin Hatch and, goodness, another Republican, another Republican, uh, it was Orrin Hatch and then somebody else. Was it Lindsey Graham? It might have been Lindsey Graham. Orrin Hatch and Lindsey Graham proposed this overarching brand new immigration law that would supersede the way it was since I think 1986 or 1980. And Bill Clinton signed it. He, he signed it into law. You guys know about the AEDPA, right? The anti, it's a, the, uh, the, the prison reform act law, right? Mm -hmm. That was hand in hand with IRA IRA at the time. So I, I, I can't, tell you whether this is true or not, but I'm fairly certain Clinton might have signed those around the same time, um, maybe on the same desk the same day. I don't know. But um, what I can tell you is it vastly changed the immigration law as we know. It all starts with that. It all starts with comprehensive immigration reform. And the Obama administration tried. Senator Dick Durbin tried. Lindsey Graham, uh, a Republican senator, went out and said, I'm here for bipartisan help on this. I want to see a DREAM Act. I want to see comprehensive immigration reform. Because what ended up happening with IRA-IRA, uh, you know, mind you, this is during the war on drugs, right? Which we know is a failed war, right? Um, casting the net um, too broadly. And you get a lot of people with nonviolent crimes that are now, you know, spending 30 years in jail, often under false pretenses. IRA-IRA um, failed. IRA-IRA tried to deter illegal immigration. I hate using that term. Uh, and it failed because now you have people that can't get into a line even if they tried, right? It mm -hmm. really infuriates me when I hear get in the line. There is no line. There's no line for the overall majority of undocumented people. If there was a line, I would be a rich man. If there was a line, a lot of people would already have their social security numbers. If there was a line, a lot of people would be paying taxes and contributing to our economy as opposed to the black economy. Right. As opposed to as opposed to the dark world, as opposed to working under the table, as opposed to, um, you know, violating the law because they need to eat and they need to put food on the table uh, for their for their families. Mm. So, yes, President Trump is not good for business at all. Um, he's, he's not good for immigration. But if you want to shut him up, it all starts with Congress. He can try all he wants and he's a loser in court. 
I haven't seen a president lose this much in federal court uh, in a long, long time, if ever. He, he loses so much when it comes to uh, federal cases involving immigration. Um, oftentimes, the U.S. attorneys will laugh at me and say, you got me on this one, or I don't want to deal with this. It sets bad precedent, so we'll just settle out of court. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not endorsing. I'm not endorsing any president here. But if, if things continue with Trump, I, I, I don't know where this goes. I don't know any immigration attorney that wants Trump for another four years. Well, thanks for that um, insight. Um, I, I've been kind of listening, and you know, in some of these conversations, I was listening to a, a podcast this week where they had, you know, basically interviewed with a ICE agent and um i think it was the daily podcast one of them this week but um in one of these podcasts they talked to the ice agent about deportations and basically um they kind of got to the point where they tried to maybe tug on his heartstrings a little bit and tried to get him to see some more humanity within this and and it was interesting in that conversation in that interview he felt that uh the idea of that being more empathetic was against the mission of ice um and he basically said, yeah, if I show that empathy, I'm going to be against what my supervisors and the people above me are kind of encouraging, which is this like straight and, uh, you know, straight line deportation or arresting and putting them in um, detention centers. So, you know, I, I keep hearing it. And I've seen it from even some of the maybe more progressive politicians, this abolishment of ICE within activism. Um, do you what are your thoughts on the idea of either abolishing ice or, or what it looks like um just to give us a little bit better understanding of why these cries within the undocumented community is saying like this place this group is not humane they don't have a mission to protect america it is a dehumanization you know group uh do you have any insight um yeah. from your line of work that might might you know give us some more understanding of that of that group yeah. ice and why people are calling for that that's a i i really like that point um, I'll tell you this. I don't know any immigration attorney that, and this is okay. My opinion, and it might be a controversial opinion amongst immigration attorneys is that we should not abolish ice. We should substantially reform ice. Um, I don't want to defund the police. I want to reform the police. They have way too much authority and way too much power. I don't want to get rid of ice because I think they serve a good purpose, but immigration law is not about equities anymore. It hasn't been since IRA IRA came into effect in 1996. Um, there used to be something called a 212C waiver, where the only question was, do you deserve to be here? Like, okay, so let's talk about that. You have a crime, you did this bad thing for immigration purposes, but you have a family here and you know you have uh, children here and you know slowly you have, you have a job here, you slowly start tipping the scales in favor of the immigrants. Or genuinely, if they don't deserve to be here, then you have a denial. But that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way anymore. So he's, you're right. ICE agents are dehumanized. It's black, it's white. It's yes, it's no. It's it's tall, it's short. There, there is no interpretation anymore when it comes to these things. An immigration officer, an ICE deportation officer now will ask one question. Is this person something I should, uh, is this person somebody I should deport? If the answer is yes, then the answer is yes. He doesn't care about equities. He doesn't care about the person who he is, you know, in the community, whether he has strong ties to the United States or anything in that, of that matter. 
If the answer is no, then the follow-up question is, should he be deported or should we put him into deportation proceedings? Um, most immigration attorneys I know, so I just talked about myself. Most immigration attorneys I know are pro-ICE, but every immigration attorney I know will say that there needs to be substantial changes to the immigration law and ICE needs to have a lot of their power taken away. I tell my own clients this all the time, and this might offend some people. I have clients that are committing horrible crimes in the United States, not respecting the law, not respecting their wives, not respecting their families, not respecting their employers at work, not respecting their immigration attorney, but that's a totally different story. Um, I don't care. But I tell people, if you're going to be a guest in the home, you need to respect the house rules. That's what my parents told me. And again, that may be a controversial opinion amongst people, especially amongst the immigration bar. But I think ICE is important because it helps to keep, you know, terrorism at bay. It, it helps to keep people who are hurting other immigrants away from those people. Immigrant violators and people, people who are immigrants who are victims of crimes are entitled to certain protections. And without ICE, oftentimes you don't get that. Now that all being said, that all being said, do you have to deport the non-criminal? Do you have to make it so black and white? Do you have to go out of your way at six in the morning to arrest the person who's simply on his way to work and failed to show up to immigration court in 2010 because he didn't receive a notification? Why can't we talk about this? Why can't you give us the opportunity to talk about everything beyond just what's on the paper, right? Did you guys know that an immigration, an ICE officer has the authority in certain cases to arrest, although that's debatable, put an asterisk on that, arrest, detain, charge, and make a decision and implement a final order of removal in one fell swoop? ICE has the ability to do that in certain cases. Did you know that the Border Patrol, CBP, similar to ICE, has the ability to question, detain, charge, and deport somebody all on their own without any oversight, without access to an attorney. These are things we need to start talking about. So yeah, the process is absolutely dehumanized. You're absolutely right. But it goes back to the question regarding how and why, and that the immigration law needs substantial reform in order to have that voice. Because the way it is now, we have you know, we're at a limited capacity. We have to prove that they fit in, you know, the, the, the triangle fits into the square at, 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 at times when quite simply no immigration attorney can do that in some cases. One thing that I'm, um, you know, really curious about is I know you probably work with people who are seeking asylum often and they, you know, in order to get asylum status, you have to be fleeing persecution you know, for specific reasons, right? It has to be membership of a social group, it has to be religion, race. Um, I believe political um, opinion might be one of them. Um, so I'm curious how you've seen those cases, you know, be handled differently um, over the course of your experience in as an immigration attorney. Um, and what is that looking like, like now? Be I mean, because I, mean, I guess we'll get into the because later, but I'm curious as to, yeah, how's that, how's that going? What's that looking like? In 2003, uh, the Bush administration signed into all the Real ID Act, which I think we all know from identification. Uh, I think Real ID is going into effect in a lot of states now. 
But the Real ID Act has a very important um, purpose for immigration law, uh, and that is if you are seeking asylum, you need to basically show on paper anything that you say out of your mouth. For example, I am fleeing persecution from my government. Okay, well, you said that and you wrote that in your affidavit, but where's the police report? Where's your you know detention paper? Where is the proof that what you said is actually happening? How often is that going to happen in an asylum case? It happens, but how often? More likely than not, that person's not going to have that information, right? They're fleeing their government. They're not going to go into the police station and say, hey, officer, no, you didn't rough me up that much. I appreciate it. Next time, can you just go easy when you're strangling me? Um, hey, listen, remember a couple weeks ago, you unlawfully detained me. Can I get a copy of that police report? I'm planning on leaving the United States in about a month, and I need that because my friends in the U.S. tell me that I need that to prove my case according to real ID. So if you can just do me a favor and just, oh, God, I'm getting detained again. Um, no, that doesn't happen. So we as immigration attorneys will say, oh, your honor, you know, they, they, they were persecuted for this reason. This is, we have this, we have that, we have this limited evidence. We have an expert witness. We have country conditions reports that buttress everything. DHS, real ID, real ID, didn't meet their burden of proof. Oh, okay. Um, I guess they win. Um, more recently, so that's some, some background, because that's happened in the Bush administration. I saw it in the Obama administration. Um, and I'm definitely seeing it in the Trump administration. I think that's just going to be something that's, you know, on the cards uh, until real ID is abolished or until there's some immigration reform. So what I'm seeing, though, recently with the Trump administration um, is an attack on a particular social group, a real attack on a particular social group. Um, remember, I was talking about how the attorney generals are basically taking prior precedent from Board of Immigration Appeals, referring themselves these cases and saying, well, I don't agree with the way it was, so I'm just going to write it the way I want it to be. Um, particular social group has been attacked specifically to recent Central American, uh, folk with a focus on recent, recent Central American migrants, because the typical Honduran, Guatemalan, or uh, Salvadoran is probably not going to come here because of um, you know, let's say a nationality-based claim. Oftentimes they'll come on a race-based claim if they're indigenous. Oftentimes they'll come on a political claim if they're politically motivated or involved. Sometimes they'll come in um, on a, uh, a religion-based claim if they converted to a different religion. But more often than not, these are particular social group cases, specifically gang violence, specifically domestic violence and people who are fleeing abusers. And guess what two cases came down from the attorney general that nullified the way things are with specifically those two types of particular social groups? You guessed it. Domestic violence abusers and survivors and gang-based claims. So, um, and then the way the particular social group is being addressed now was completely rewritten. Um, fortunately for me, I live in Chicago and I practice in Chicago, so cases involving um, uh, somebody who lives in Wisconsin and Indiana and Illinois, uh, there's Seventh Circuit court law, uh, case law that, that trumps, no, no pun intended, what the attorney general is trying to do. Um, and you're seeing that elsewhere um, in the Fourth Circuit, I think, in the Third Circuit, in the Ninth Circuit. But to answer your question, yeah, um, asylum law is being rewritten as we speak unilaterally by the Department of Justice and specifically the attorney general. And specifically with PSGs.
That's just so unreal to me. I mean, I mean, do you see what is it even going to look like to have to backtrack on that? Or do you see that ever happening? I mean, how like let's just say that we escape this like, you know, this Trump administration and move in a different direction, um, you know, come November. I mean, what would the workload even look like to even change these things to be even what they used to be, which was, I mean, to your point, like you've said this before, like, it's not like it's been good or perfect or like, yeah, we've got a great immigration system here. No, like it's had its flaws as well. And, and so even going back to the old system, like how much work do you think that that would take? A lot. Fortunately, there's a think tank. I don't know the name. Um, there's some nonprofit, I think, that's basically monitoring every new regulation, every new um, interpretation, every new executive order, every guideline, every policy memo, um, every publication, every rule proposal, every rule change, every new Board of Immigration Appeal case, every new Board of Immigration Appeal appointee, every immigration judge appointee, every appointee to Secretary of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, quote unquote, I mean, cough, cough. Um, and I think what they're going to do is they're going to say, look, we have this giant book of bad things and they're going to take it to, say, Biden, hopefully, and say, listen, um, new Department of Homeland Security, we have 10,000 things that the old guy kind of messed up. Could you just revert, just hit a reset button and revert it all back to what it used to be? Um, I jokingly said once at a presentation, I think a new president should just come in and say, I hereby revoke anything um, immigration related from, uh, January, what, 17th, January 17th, 2016 to January 16th, 2021. Um, and I do so, you know, by signature signed, dated. Um, I'm not too concerned about that. I, I'm, I'm concerned about him winning again because he's going to, he, I'm not even going to talk about it. Uh, it, it stresses me out just thinking about it because he has to like save a little bit of face to get reelected just a little bit. Could you imagine if he has free spinning wheels? Like, so, so every time I have this conversation, I get to this point where I, I just, I'm flabbergasted and I don't have, I don't have any words to, to say it if he's reelected. I, I might go into like competitive fishing and try to make money doing that. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look at, for example, have you guys heard of MPP, the Migrant Protection Program? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently, if you're seeking asylum in the U.S., you need to stay in a detention center in Mexico. So not only do they have detention centers now, but they have detention centers that aren't even in the U.S., so you can have an attorney in the U.S., MPP, look it up, Migrant Protection Program. Wow. It's it's there. It's subject to federal court review, but it's there. Uh. Um, also, another fun point regarding um, reversing all of this. The immigration court, uh, there was a New York Times article, I think, uh, where a FOIA uncovered, the beauty of a FOIA, right, if we can actually get it heard, um, a FOIA uncovered that the Department of Justice, the Trump administration's Department of Justice was encouraging uh, long-standing immigration judges that were appointed by or, you know, came into power authority, I should say, um, during the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations back when people were sane, <laughs> um, 
they were encouraging them, basically buying them out, saying, here's a little bit of extra money so that you can leave. Why? So they can get vacancies so they can, so the Trump administration can put in their own people. Um, and no one said a darn thing about this. The New York Times published this and immigration attorneys made a big thing about it and no one really said anything about it. I'll tell you this, the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is just above the immigration courts, has recently seen two appointees, um, Couch, uh, board member Couch and board member Montante. And I'll say them by name because they are horrible. There, I said it. They are horrible, horrible adjudicators, um, extremely anti-immigrant. Um, I've dealt with at least one of them in one specific case where they literally just try to make your life a living hell as a practitioner. Um, Montante was, I think, reprimanded, sanctioned, and forced to resign by the Obama administration for his handling of certain immigration cases out of the Buffalo Immigration Court. But nobody reports this. Wow. So he goes out, of, he, he, he comes back and says, I'm back from the fire and fury. And I'm not even an immigration judge anymore. I'm an immigration appellate board member. So even if you win at the immigration court by some miracle, you have to deal with him if DHS appeals. That's a nightmare. Yeah, it really is a nightmare. By the way, sorry, my, my wife, is uh, she just got home, so she might be walking around the bathroom. It's all good. That's her house. No problem. <laughs> it is her house. She pays the mortgage. <laughs> I'm just squatting. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, well, Michael, you've, you've spent an extra half hour with us. I don't know, Jordan, you want to jump in? Do you have anything else? Well, Michael, do you, can you spare like maybe three minutes? Sure. One last question. So one of our viewers, Son, um, that, that you do know, he asked, and I guess this question is is more, you know, it, it moves to this idea of of the rights a lot of the clients that you work with have. He asked if an ICE officer approaches you at an airport or train station and they ask you, "Are you a U.S. citizen? Yes. Are you allowed to not answer?" Yes. What are your rights in those? Um, in I'm those a person areas? here in the United States, and I have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Yes. Just, no, thank you. I don't want to answer your question. You can ask me another question, but I'm not going to answer that question. Because what's what what's the alternative if if you say no, or if you say yes, you've made a false claim to U.S. citizenship. Mm. Right. Um, so, if I'm understanding you correctly, you could if you say yes and you make a false claim, they could essentially say this is a reason why then we they are could in theory, yeah. They could say we, you know, you've oh, made a wow. false claim to US citizenship. In theory. Yeah. I mean I haven't seen that, mm. but yeah. They could say like false impersonation, like impersonation, you know, like they could always get other authorities involved, call them, have them come. Oh, are you, you said you're a citizen. You say you're this name, this person, whatever, and create all kinds of issues for that person for sure. Yeah. For example, let's just work with that. Are you a US citizen? I'm not going to answer. Well, show us your, show us your passport, show us some ID, blah, blah, blah. I don't have any of that stuff because I'm an American citizen. I, why would I carry that stuff on me? You've just incriminated yourself. Also, regarding ICE in public places in general, or DHS in public places in general, I love the idea of a warrant, like an ICE warrant. That's ridiculous to me. 
Um, I don't think there's such thing as a nice warrant. They even call it an administrative warrant. And then when you question them about it, they don't know what to say. I'm like, okay, ice warrant, right? So you can ask that question if you have a warrant, right? If you have a warrant that says, I am entitled to ask you this question. Okay, fine. I'll answer your question because you have a warrant. My first question is, where did you get that warrant? From another ICE officer, because that's where they get them. Mm. So imagine, imagine a warrant in a criminal case signed off by another police officer. That's a nice warrant. That's so anytime an immigrant is arrested, that is how they get their authority. Right? Wow. Going back to we need to get comprehensive immigration reform and it all starts with Congress. Right? So then the follow-up question is, is your buddy at ICE a, a judge? No. Is your buddy at ICE like part of any Article Three court, federal court? Does he have friends in high places? Where did he get this warrant? Or is this, you know, I, I mean, I could just write some stuff on a piece of paper and call it a warrant, right? Like if you come into my house and I say you are now under the, you know, jurisdiction of my house and I just say warrant, right? Is that a real warrant? No. It's just a piece of paper that says warrant on it. So that's every ICE warrant since the beginning of time. It's just a piece of paper that might have been typed up in an office that says warrant. It's not a real warrant. So no, you don't have to answer that question unless there is a court signed by an actual judge warrant. Mm -hmm. I, I think that feeds into, and I, I know you have to, to leave, but I just to, to kind of piggyback off of what is being said, I think that kind of feeds into something that we've seen take place a lot. Like uh, Logan, I know you mentioned the, the daily podcast where they talked about some of this and you hear some of the clips uh, of when an ICE officer very intimidately kind of enters into the home of, of some of these immigrants. Um, and there, there's one particular moment where the lady asks, do you have any any paperwork to justify you here? And he, he says it, yeah, I, I have this warrant. Like he kind of quickly flashes it at her and puts it back. But then he says something that really frightens me when he says, um, but it doesn't matter because you allowed me to enter your home as if her entrance into uh, it, allowing him to enter into her home kind of nullifies any action of her asking for paperwork. None of that matters anymore because she allowed him entrance. But what they don't talk about is that kind of intimidation tactics that you see that take place once he knocks on that door and essentially does not provide any information on what the rights she has uh, for her. And I think that that is, is part of the concern that I've seen a lot of people fighting for immigration reform is that immigrants seem to not know uh, what their rights are in moments like this. And there seem to be virtually no efforts um, from like the presidential administrative side uh, to provide any outlets, except for people like you who go into that field. Uh, so I, I'm wondering if you can perhaps give uh, some uh, uh, resources for us to say, hey, here are some people who you can go to that are saying, this is what we're doing to let these immigrants know what their rights are. Yes. Um, there is, um, I'm, I'm Googling it now. Uh, there's a Know Your Rights seminar or sorry i know your rights uh powerpoint and a um 
a YouTube video, and it's available in several languages, um, and it's provided by the ACLU. If you Google, I'm trying to find them, trying to scramble to find it, but um, if you Google Know Your Rights, um, ACLU, immigration, say Spanish or Arabic, um, and I'm sure it'll take you to the other languages. Um, yeah, I mean, they use fear tactics. So obviously if somebody's in your home, you've invited them into your home, did they really, did you really invite them into your home? No, but they're in your home now, so they have the, you know, quote unquote, right to swoop around. Um, that's, a, that's a very common tactic and it, it happens in the immigrant community, it happens in the citizen community, right? With, with uh, we just want to talk, just let us in, we just want to talk. We just want to make sure that you're not the person we're looking for, right? Is that it right there? Nice yeah. job. Nice job. Um, those quick fingers. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would imagine, I'm not trying to stereotype here, but I would imagine somebody who has a language barrier, who has never had any interactions with law enforcement, and who is scared because there's somebody with, you know, a big, strong guy with, with a gun and a badge and all this paperwork and he's got a radio and you can hear something. You don't understand what he's saying, but he looks intimidating. I would imagine you want to comply with him. That's what your instinct says, right? Yeah. I mean, I would in that situation. And then I, you know, I'll, I'll go to them and say, did you sign anything? Yeah, but I had no other choice. Of course you had no other choice if you thought you had no other choice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michael. We are honestly blessed and glad that you decided to stay on a little bit longer with us. We don't want to keep you too long, but thank you so much for just sharing your experience and your story. And we hope to have you back on. Thanks soon. for having me, everybody. Appreciate, yeah, appreciate it. it. Michael, thanks. Thank you. So guys, jumping off of what Michael said, I mean, I know you guys probably just have general takes that you wanted to just get out upon reading this story and upon just thinking about immigration and immigrant rights, especially in Trump era that we're currently in. So please tell me what's on your mind. I think well, one of the things that really stand out is um, People, it, it can be tempting to kind of look at presidencies and say that these things naturally do not change the lives of, of ordinary people here um, because it's so far up so that it, it can feel kind of removed. But it was helpful to have a lawyer that is present in the conversation to say, no, like, let me, let me break down how this org chart works to show you how a man who is sitting in the White House, if he is fueled by xenophobia, this is how much influence he has that can come all the way down to an ICE agent knocking on someone's door. Um, and I think it, if anything, it should reinforce the importance of elections uh, because as he tried to mention some of the things that Barack Obama tried to accomplish, what he did accomplish um, and the, the roadblocks that he encountered when he tried to implement certain things, um, it truly does show you that voting matters on, on so many facets, from presidents to local Congress, all of it. And, and I think that is, is, is something I would just want to encourage everyone that's listening again 
if this did not provide you insight on how important voting is, then I, I don't know what would. Of note, you can, if you are in Minnesota or South Dakota, you can do early in-person voting starting tomorrow. If you're in Michigan, oh, yes. Virginia, Vermont, or Wyoming, uh, you can vote early uh, on Friday. Excellent. That's, that's wild. It's already September. It's literally September, October. We're mid-September. So essentially one full month and some change. And then we're uh, we're going to the polls. So we really need to make sure we know what we're doing. And if you have not signed up for your mail-in ballot, then you definitely need to do that. I do want to say really quick, I think it's also been just super interesting, you know, working because I've been working with asylees and refugees for it's going to be about a year in a couple of weeks now and it's just been wild just what michael was saying how and what asian was saying too how the, how this immigration has just affected everything and has really emboldened people to take advantage of the system in terrible ways i mean for 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 for, in, for my organization our funding has been cut we've been seeing less people less refugees, less asylees come into the country. We haven't been able to hire more people to, I, I think in my office, we are an office of maybe seven, eight people, and we haven't been able to hire because if we do try to hire, Trump might notice activity and he might cut us our, our funding even further. Wow. So it's wild. I mean, wow. it's like I wake up literally every single day in Trump's shadow. That's literally what it is. That's, that's, that's what it's like at my job. And... um that's why, again, it's so important to make sure that we're informed on these things because there's so many injustices happening that we just don't know and we really need to be vigilant. Yeah, that's that's well said, Jordan. And I just want to shout out uh, Michael some more. Um, this was, I, I kind of laugh with him because when I text him to ask him to do the pod, I, I preface my message by saying, for once, I'm not reaching out to you about a student immigration issue because <laughs> at any time there have been a couple times over the past three years where, you know, something will someone from campus will kind of hear that I know an immigration attorney and it's a, a bizarre situation. Most recently, we had a student who uh, her family was vacationing and they drove a little bit too close to the southern border while they were vacationing and family members just got scooped up and she didn't know where they were, you know? Um, she was able to have like a quick phone conversation with them before losing contact. But just like the, the, the horror that you could imagine feeling of just hearing that, oh, my, my immediate family got scooped up and I don't know where they are and I have no way of figuring it out and nobody's telling me anything. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so really complicated situations like that. I'd reach out to Michael and, you know, he'd find some kind of way to sort of methodically just work through this really broken system to try to help, you know. And so there's so many, you know, immigration attorneys that I think are just doing, you know, life-saving work. I remember when the Muslim ban happened, you know, calling and texting him, just like sitting in that O'Hare airport all day, just like trying to figure out how to help people. Um, it's just really a mess. And so um, 
I think I, I do. I do hope that you know Congress and and really hopefully a new presidential administration can finally get us to the place where we really overturn a really broken system uh, because it's in dire need. And, and there's so many. I mean, you could just while I was talk, listening to him, I was just thinking about the fact that man, you could just so easily forget um, what kinds of things are happening just sort of right under our noses, you know, and. Um, uh, it's just, it's just terrible. It's really, really terrible. I keep um, hearing from people. I keep hearing people talk about how all of this kind of, it makes you understand all of a sudden, like how the Holocaust could happen. Like that's always been that question of like, how did people over there just kind of let this happen? Like, why wasn't there mass outrage? Why, like, why didn't, how did that happen? And like living through this and seeing how easily it is, like you said, Nick, to just not know, like you could, like you can just not really even know what's going on. Um, yeah, it just puts that into perspective a lot of like, it's actually way easier than we think it is for our governments to get away with doing horrifying things, even yeah. in a, dem a democracy where we control the people get put in office yeah and just like you know on that note i think if you didn't understand the power of the executive branch um, before i hope that some of the things that um michael shared in terms of their authority over these what is really essentially its own system of like administrative law and how the executive branch gets to pick and choose who's over those, you know, the DOJ and ICE and DHS and all that stuff. Um, you know, I hope that we realize how important it is who we vote into presidency. I mean, we've talked about this time and time again, for sure, um, but that's significant. It doesn't just affect, oh, who's in the Oval Office. It's far reaching. Um, and then the immigration statutes, uh, like the immigration act that exists now is so outdated and cr like so outdated guys that it still has errors in it in terms of the governing authority. Like it still refers to a governing authority that has been dissolved. That's how outdated and like neglected it is. And that just shows like, we don't care about this area of law the way we care about other issues. We basically say, you know what? The only thing that really matters are the people who we have deemed to be worthy of, of like our protections and anybody else, like we don't really care that much about what happens to them, um, if at all. And so, you know, there's, there's an intersection here of needing presidents who care, but it's also the intersection of meeting, um, also right there at the intersection of meeting Congress people who care enough to delve into this complex and and um, nuanced document and to say, these are the problems with it, these are the inconsistencies, and this is how we're gonna improve this um, for the betterment of our nation. Yeah, and if I could just jump in, I think that that I was listening to a podcast earlier where they kind of talked a little bit about the difference between a good faith argument and kind of a bad faith argument. And I think that's a really important distinction in this immigration conversation. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I think that there is a bad faith argument 
in this immigration conversation where it's like, well, you know, we're we think that these people just deserve to be treated the way that they're being treated. And I think there is a good faith argument where people are asking the question, like, what do we do about our borders? What do we do about people who are coming from other countries? Like, what do we do? And and I think that if we aren't very clear on that question, it, it's really easy to allow these really horrific things to just perpetuate because we can throw our hands up and say, well, what are we supposed to do? Like people are coming over and we have, you know, we have to really realize, and I think Michael really did a great job of helping us understand that this system is beyond broken. I mean, like it's useless. There's not one good thing about what we are currently doing um, specifically for those crossing the southern border. And so I just think it's really important to know that and to acknowledge that because there are, I think, well-meaning people who would look at the immigration crisis and say, well, what are we supposed to do? You got to get in line. And I see people saying that. And I think that they, I want to believe that they're trying to have a good faith, you know, conversation about immigration but there is not a single area, as Michael has so clearly helped us to understand, there really isn't a single area about our immigration system that is working well and specifically working well for uh, minoritized people. Thank you guys so much for your thoughts. And again, we're so glad that um, Michael was able to come and join us for the show. So before we close, we are going to have our PMI which I know is some of your favorite parts of the show. So we're going to just start with Mike here. And actually, I think Mike might be a little busy. So let's start with Esther. Um, don't forget, PMI stands for Piqued My Interest. It's anything. It could be book, podcast, TV, music, even a dream you had that has inspired you and that you definitely want to share with others. Esther, could you go first, please? Um, yeah, so my PMI last week, I went to a virtual seminar, I guess, uh, from Black Lives Matter DC in connection with a bunch of other organizations, but it was all about um, basically divesting the movement from capitalism and how do we fund organizers and activists and their all the work that they do in other ways that is not relying on even nonprofit organizations, um, philanthropy from um, people who might have interests that are not in, a, in alignment with the work that activists are doing. It was very, very good. But if you are looking for a place to um, direct your financial support, there were some really awesome um, organizations that were there. Um, like I'll just go through Healers for Liberation, which they provide free um, mental health services to organizers in DC, uh, no, justice, no pride, which focuses on housing um, LGBTQ people in the area. And then lastly, resource generation, which is an organization that actually um, targets young, mostly white, white people with access to wealth and then teaches them how they can um, redistribute their own wealth. Um, so those were all just awesome, awesome organizations that are run by regular people for free. They're not nonprofits. They don't have access to those pools and sources of funding. So um, they're completely reliant on us to support them. So go support them. Thank you. And Garrison, could you share for us next, please? 
Sure. So I think we talked a little bit about, you know, this kind of trend a few maybe a month or so ago where Christians have been trying to say that the Black Lives Matter organization specifically is out to destroy Christianity and it's Marxist and godless and anti-God and all this stuff. And for whatever reason, that has specifically stuck in my crawl and kind of upset me, you know, personally, I, I can't, I don't know why, but it just does because I think it's so outlandish. Well, interestingly enough, um, one of the founders, the executive director of Black Lives Matter actually released a statement um, this past week um, on their on the Black Lives Matter website where she says, quote, to insinuate that our movement is trying to destroy Christianity is disgraceful and outright offends our Christian siblings who are part of our movement against racial injustice. I just felt so seen by the statement. And I also felt like it was like once and for all a kind of a clear, you know, like gesture to say like, listen, like what you all are saying about this movement is just false on so many levels. She goes on to kind of elucidate why it's false and, and all of the white supremacy wrapped up in trying to dismantle black suffrage movements. But I've been thinking about it ever since. And um, ironically, the very people who were so vocal about Black Lives Matter being anti-God did not find it within their moral framework to share this statement um, out of fairness either. So. Excellent, thank you. Mike, could you share your PMI for us next, please? Sure, so my, my PMI is somewhat connected to what Garrison just shared. It's actually the Collegedale Community Church's statement retracting mm. their previous statement about Black Lives Matter. Oh, wait, of, of course that didn't happen because- Oh, I missed of course, of course they didn't. Of course they didn't retract their statement because you know Christians say stuff and then when it's proven wrong, they just have a revelation seminar. <laughs> so you know, my actual peak, my interest is this book is entitled Brown Church by Dr. Robert Chow Romero. I've been meaning to read it for a bit, but um, also happy Hispanic Heritage Month to our Hispanic and Latinx community. It's uh, my recommended resource for our campus during Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, but it's a really powerful book. Uh, looks, as it says here, at five centuries of Latinx social justice theology and identity. It's been really illuminating to hear him talk about the Brown Church, that concept, Brown Church and Brown Theology. And so I really um, encourage folks to check that out, particularly during this month. Excellent. Thank you. And we look forward to the Revelation Seminar you're going to be putting on in a couple of weeks. And Adrian, do Adrian, did we ask you? Yes, no, we didn't. Adrian, could you share your PMI for us, please? Yes. So uh shout out to Garrison for putting me on to the podcast. As a client, I am an addict now. Um the man is phenomenal. I, I love his content, but there's one that really had me just very silent just reflecting on it which doesn't happen often with podcasts he did one on monday with race policing and the universal yearning for safety um i thought it was profound um he has a, a guest on there um philip uh goff uh, did an excellent job at bringing numbers statistics and facts to show some of the problems that we have with with policing and how it is in 
completely drenched with housing, poverty, equity, um, so many things. So I would definitely recommend if, if any of you all are truly trying to have a better understanding um, of policing, of what crime really looks like in our country, I, I think this podcast would do a phenomenal job at educating. Very good. Excellent. And Simone, did you share your PMI? Yes, please. Yeah. So um, I have basically been spending most of my time just kind of in like legal organizations trying to figure out what we can do to mobilize during this time. You know, how can we like bring litigation when it comes to voter suppression and like how can we, you know, better help um, combat those things? So um, my PMI this week is not a book or anything. It's a hotline number. It's one eight six six our vote. And it basically, if you see any voter suppression or anything like that, call the. That's the hotline to the lawyers committee. I'll be volunteering with them um, as a captain on their on voting day. Um, but they'll be, you know, for early voting and all that stuff. Keep an eye out if you see anything fishy. Anybody, you know, is turning people away when they're not supposed to be all that stuff you can or if you have any questions about your ballot how you're supposed to fill it out all that stuff you can call and get answers on that immediately they're happy to help so yeah and lawyers committee in general is just really amazing so yeah excellent excellent thank you guys so much for sharing so me and Lo my best friend logan and i have the <laughs> same pmi um so me and Logan are going to improvise this whole thing. I just thought of this. It's probably going to go terribly, but we're going to do it anyway. So yeah. Logan and I have been enjoying this show called Woke on Hulu. Logan, what is this show about? Um, it's about a black cartoonist, and he actually lives here in San Francisco, and he pretty much just writes a cartoon strip in a paper, and he has a traumatizing event happen that kind of changes his perspective on the black experience. Amazing. And that's a great premise. And I also just love how messy the conversations on race, on on even police brutality, on just the black experience that happened in the show. It's, it's very complex. You get to see a lot of different perspectives. And it really asks and demands the question of how should you, in your own unique way, address the struggles of black people as a black person? I think it's super interesting. So Logan, thank you so much for letting me steal your PMI and thank you, Mike, for pointing that out. So guys, we are excited to have <laughs> wrapped up another show. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out the PMIs and also don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts and also on YouTube and Spotify if you wanna listen to this conversation again. I will say, if you can, share the podcast with someone. I think this was a very important conversation that we had today. Share the podcast with at least a, one person so they can be a part of this conversation too. Thank you so much for listening and spending this time with us. I am Jordan, and we are a friend of interaction. We'll see you next week. Go vote. Go vote. Bye. <laughs>